Good morning, and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, Texas. We are a spirited and spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, dedicated to the seven and maybe now eight principles of Unitarian Universalism, dedicated to being in right relationship with one another and with ourselves and with the planet. You are welcome here this morning. We come from a heritage of teaching that there's a divine spark within everyone. Uh, when we are here together, one of the ways that we greet the divine in our midst is by turning to the people around us and welcoming them here. While we are virtual, we do it in the comments if we have comments. So please take the time to check in and let us know where you're watching from and who you are. And we will greet one another. I invite you now to say the chalice lighting words with me if you are moved to do so. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Our call to worship today is from American sociologist, historian, civil rights activist, pan-Africanist author, writer, and editor, W.E.B. Du Bois. The prayer of our souls is a petition for persistence, not for the one good deed or single thought, but deed on deed and thought on thought until day calling unto day shall make a life worth living. This congregation wrote its mission statement. We revisit it every seven years. We write it on the wall of our sanctuary and we say it together because it guides our decisions. Together we nourish souls transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. One of the ways that we build the beloved community is by having a moment for beloved community every Sunday where all of us who are affected by white supremacy culture have the chance to see some of the ways that it works. White supremacy culture just means a culture that is constructed so that the people who identify as white end up on top. What happens when you send in a job application? This was a study done in 2004 at the University of Wisconsin. Exactly the same resumes except for the name were sent out to companies as a test to see who would get callbacks, who would get a response, how fast the response would be. What they found is that resumes with names like Emily and Greg got 50% more callbacks and faster response than exactly the same resume with a name identified with African-American culture like Jamal or Lakeisha. Just think about that, that your name will determine 
what kind of response you get on a job application, even though the resume is exactly the same. That's one of the ways that our culture is built so that white people rise to the top with, I won't say no effort, but definitely with an advantage. Our reading today comes from an adaptation of the Bodhisattva vows found in our gray hymnal called Free from Suffering. May all sentient beings be well and enjoy the root of happiness, free from suffering and the root of suffering. May they not be separated from the joy beyond sorrow. May they dwell in spacious equanimity, free from craving, fear, and ignorance. This is the time in our service when we join together in an attitude of meditation and prayer so that we listen or speak to God as we understand God or where we listen to our inner wisdom or where we just watch our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. Let us enter together into what Ralph Waldo Emerson, our forebear, called the wise silence. As we continue our attitude of meditation, you are invited to light candles of joy or sorrow, hope, remembrance, or determination. do a wedding, a lot of times if I feel inspired, I will say to the couple that every relationship is built on 10 tiny decisions that you make every day. Are you going to smile at the other person when they come into the room? Are you going to listen to the other person when they have something to talk to you about? Are you going to offer the first foot massage? Are you going to say I'm sorry first when you have a disagreement? Even though you're right, of course. What decisions do you make every day that 
build your relationship. And it's not just relationships that are built like this with tiny decisions made every day, tiny actions taken every day. This is how a life is built. We've been studying the Buddhist Eightfold Path. We've actually just been talking about this white woman's fascination with Buddhism and what I understand to be the Eightfold Path. And I'm not any kind of an expert, as I tell you every Sunday. But the step on the path that we're talking about today is right action. And the reason we're talking about it is that the last of the five remembrances that you're supposed to remind yourself of every day, talk about your actions. Let me just read you the remembrances again. One, I am subject to aging and I have not gone beyond aging. Two, I'm subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. Three, I'm subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. Four, I will grow different, separate from all that is dear and appealing to me. And five, the last one, I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and I have my actions as my arbitrator. Whatever I do for good or for evil, to that will I fall heir. So we're talking about our actions, the actions that we are heir to, the actions through which we relate to everyone. And I want to tell you again and remind you that this Eightfold Path is not how to be a good person. This Eightfold Path is something to try in order to bring more happiness, peace, and compassion into your life. More clarity, more openness, more spiritual fitness, if you will. So many in our culture feel that a fear of hell is what keeps you doing good actions. One of our universalist forebears, the minister Hosea Ballou, was a circuit-riding minister, as many were in those days, and he, on his horse, met a Baptist minister on his horse coming to the crossroads. And the Baptist minister said to him, Dr. Ballou, you are a universalist. Now, if, if I were a universalist, I would just knock you over the head and steal your horse and your saddle and I would have no fear of going to hell. What would keep me from doing that? And Baloo said, Sir, if you were a universalist, that thought would never have occurred to you. Another time, a distressed father came to Hosea Baloo and said, I'm worried about my son. I've told you all this story before. I'm worried about my son. He's drinking in the tavern every night. He's doing mischief with uh, loose women. And I'm worried that he's going to go to hell. And Baloo said to the father with a serious face, Okay, let's uh, waylay him on the path on his way home. And we will have built a big fire and we'll drag him into the fire and that'll cure him. And the father said, why would I do that to my own son? And Baloo said, yes, if you, an imperfect and human father, would not do that to your child, why would you believe God? 
would do that to God's children. So as universalists, we do not believe that God sends anyone to hell. It was the tradition in earlier days that universalists were not allowed to sit on a jury because our belief that God didn't send anybody to hell was so scandalizing to the dominant culture who believed that you only do good actions in order to avoid hell. Well, as Unitarian Universalists here in 2021, we believe that you do good actions in your life in order to have a more peaceful life, uh, a clear mind and an open heart, which is what Buddhist teacher Eric Kolvig says. We, we act in a way that is good because we understand that we are heirs to our actions, that our actions affect everyone around us and they affect the rest of our life as if we are standing in the stream of our lives and whatever we have put into the stream in time past comes down the stream and affects the purity and clarity of the water that we get to play in. So why would we would we make actions that pollute our streams? Now, when I talk about polluted streams, I just have to take a little detour here and acknowledge that we are also affected by the actions of others. I grew up very near Appalachia where the mining companies polluted so many thousands of miles of pure little streams. And ruined thousands of lives and homesteads because they could, because the courts always voted for their side, really until the late 80s. Other people's actions can poison the streams of our lives. But do we have control over those? We do not. We have control only over our own actions. So even though we're affected by the actions of others, we are defined by our own actions. Now, this can get overwhelming. If you're a person like me, I think, okay, okay, so I need to do good actions, and there's so many things wrong in this world, and I have to do something about everything. And... So I can send $30 here and I can send $20 there and I, I have to do something about this situation and that situation and I have to figure out how to fix the Middle East and I have to figure out how to fix... No, 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 no. <clears throat> A person like me is acting like I'm the only person in the world, which obviously I'm not. I'm not the only person. I'm not the smartest person. I'm not the kindest person. I'm not the strongest person. I'm just a person, an ordinary person. And so what I think I should do is, as the princess said in Frozen 2, I do the next right thing. I'm in the dark. I don't know what to do. I'm on the floor. I do the next right thing. I take a step, and then I take another step, and I do the next right thing, and that's all I can do. How do you know what the next right thing is? Well, you have to pay attention to your inner wisdom, which 
often knows a lot of times we pretend, I have no idea what the right thing to do is in this situation. But you do. You really do. And sometimes, unfortunately in this world, there is no right thing to do. So you have to do just the most right thing. And sometimes you even want to consult with others. You know, I have a a kitchen cabinet of several friends who help me run my life. And I will (coughs) ask them what they feel I should do. And then I will either take their advice or not. But it helps to have friends who are giving you advice, which you can either follow or not follow. So for Unitarian Universalists, And for the Buddhists, according to my understanding, the reason to live a good life is the same. We do it to be happy, and we do it to be spiritually fit, so that we can handle the things that come our way without falling apart. Unless it's just time to fall apart, and sometimes it is. But then we pull ourselves together again, because this is always a spiral path. Everything is coming together, then it falls apart. Then it comes together, then it falls apart. You go, I've been here before, but you're a little bit farther along than you were the last time you fell apart over this thing. That's how I like to picture it anyway. The, the teachings of Buddhism talk about five precepts in, tra- in training for right action. The first one is training for non-harming. So you ask yourself, okay, I want to do the next right thing. It has to be a thing that's non-harming. Is it going to kill somebody? Am I going to have to beat somebody up? Am I going to have to shoot somebody? Am I going to have to work in a place where I call elderly people and convince them that the IRS is after them unless they send me money? That is a job. Um, that I'm going to talk about next time, right livelihood, that is a job that could do harm to people. So we want to do non-harming. And we want to be non-harming in a way, and this is hard, in a way that's not self-righteous. I've told you about this friend of mine who's very righteous and, and a lovely person, but very difficult to talk to because they're always telling you that you shouldn't be wearing animal products on your shoes you shouldn't be eating animal products you should not be um, uh, eating produce that comes from more than five miles from your house Um, there's a lot of judging and the judging and harshness in itself is harming so always watch for that feeling of being righteous that rises up in you because that should send up a red flag that you're maybe about to do some harm. Obviously, we're not supposed to have uh, violent interactions with our family. Um, That is harming. Now, the second one is that you're not going to steal. There's the obvious stealing where I take something that doesn't belong to me But then there's also stealing someone's reputation or stealing someone's um, credit 
at work for a job. There's also stealing somebody's um, friend away from them by telling something untrue about that person. We don't take money that belongs to other people, but we also don't take other intangibles that belong to other people. And then there's the corollary to me, which strikes uh, truth in me, and I don't know if it will in you, but that is if you own a lot of stuff or if you have more money than you can use, sometimes you might want to think, does this fifth thing that I have for others of, does this, do I need this? Am I using this? Because if, if I'm not, maybe it belongs to someone else. Maybe I'm stealing it from someone else who doesn't own it yet, but who should be owning it. So we we try not to be a hoarder with our things, although that's difficult and another sermon entirely. But we try not to hold on to things that may not be ours anymore. They may want to belong to other people. The third is... Uh, sexual misconduct that we uh, that we agree that right action involves avoiding sexual misconduct that uses sex in a way that's harmful to yourself or others i don't know what all this would mean for you i haven't given this a lot of thought except in my own impressions in my own life i think there are probably many sermons that could be preached about this I I will just say don't have sex with children don't have sex with people who are not consenting partners that's the basics of how to be non-harming with sex don't use it as a weapon the fourth goes back to our uh, step from last sermon. I undertake the training to refrain from harsh speech, from lying, from slander, and from idle speech. I will attempt to speak and write in ways that are both truthful and appropriate. Sometimes when you write the truth, it hurts other people's feelings, but it doesn't actually harm them. Sometimes when you speak an uncomfortable truth, it makes people feel uncomfortable and they may interpret that as feeling unsafe. But in fact, they are not really in any danger. They are safe. They just have to be brave enough to feel uncomfortable. I'm a big proponent of speaking truth in love loving another person while you speak the truth to them and being willing for them to speak truth to you. Harsh speech is almost never necessary, but truthful speech is necessary always. The fifth one, the last one, is that you undertake the training to refrain from using intoxicants that dull and confuse the mind. You will attempt to cultivate a clear mind and an open heart. This touches a lot of our lives. So we, in right action, try to refrain from dulling our mind. From becoming an addict. 
This has been a hard year. And I think a lot of people have fallen into using intoxicating substances just in order to get through the year. And I want to say, my heart is with you. And I understand. And yet, you also understand that this does not cause peace and happiness. I mean, a glass of wine with dinner or two, no big deal. But you know when it's too much. I am never going to say to you, how much are you drinking? Are you using? You know between yourself and your conscience whether your actions are harmful in terms of the use of intoxicants. Really, I'm kind of uncomfortable preaching this sermon. I, I think you could probably tell. Because as a Unitarian Universalist minister, I don't normally thunder and point fingers and say, we have to stop doing this and start doing that. And Buddhism doesn't do that either. We just are asked to consider, are our actions good for our people? Are our actions good for our community? Do we have to do something about everything? No. I would say, pick two things. Pick two things you're going to do something about. Anything else is overwhelming, and the world does not need us to be overwhelmed. The world needs us to be rested and purposeful. And the world needs us to be joyful and not grim and not self-righteous. So two things that you can do something about once you can figure out what the next right thing to do is. And all blessings on you who are trying to do that. May it be so. Now let there be an offering taken to strengthen and support this congregation and its mission. The congregation is mostly supported by the generous pledges of our members. But I need to say now that summer is upon us and people are starting to travel, that a lot of people stop paying on their pledges in the summer just because they're away, they're not thinking about it. And so the church kind of grinds to a halt in terms of cash flow. So I would ask those of you who are pledgers um, to please remember to pay your pledges, even during the summer, so that we don't have to wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat wondering um, how we're going to be strong when we all come back together in September. Now please join me, if you wish, in saying our words for extinguishing our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Sing along with me if you care to. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. And I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest 
in me. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.